Hello. And welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Bernarda used to introduce horror films with a caption slide with a badly cut out Mummy, Dracula and Frankenstein and the word brrrr. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that they remember that no one else ever seems to are writers Stephen Brotherston and Dave Lawrence. Stephen, Dave, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, at the moment we are writing Scarred for Life Volume 2, the 1980s, because we've released Scarred for Life Volume 1 last year, the 1970s. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook talking about the dark side of pop culture from those decades. Uh, public information films, old scary kids to tell you, nuclear war. Absolutely. Yeah, and the doll. That's the most scary thing of all. Most of your choices today are actually on the lighter side of things, oddly. I can't promise it won't get dark later on, folks, but <laughs> really, you can't get much further removed from Scarp for Life than your first choice. Tamata <laughs> Okay, well that was a record that will be burnt into the memory of anyone of a certain age, and I doubt it's been played anywhere since then. So, Dave, who were Quantum Jump and what was the Lone Ranger? Quantum Jump were a band who had a hit with a song called Lone Ranger in 1978 off the back of the Kenny Everett video show having a quite a racist cartoon at the start. It's a pair of lips singing this one particular word. Am I right in thinking there was a bone through the nose? There was a bone through the nose as well, yeah. I, I, I watched that on YouTube today just to check there was a bone in the nose, and there is <laughs> actually a bone through the nose of this large-lipped person as they sing this one word. They originally released it as a, as a single, and I think it was 1975 where it got nowhere, and it only came, I say, became famous because of Kenny Everett co-opted the word, the longest place name in the world. So did they release it off the back of it? Yes, they did, and they had a hit with it at that point. Wow. We're all waiting. Come on, what was the word? Okay, the word was Tamata Watatangi Angikuyu Wu Tamataya Tu Bukaka Bikimunga Honoka Poka Wana Wakatanatahu Matakua Tango No Kamikitora. Wow. And I spent a lot of wow. I thank you. I, I spent a lot of time with that single with the needle hovering over the first five seconds, transcribing it. <laughs> So I could learn this one word. Well, I did some reading up on Quantum Jump, and it sounds like... I mean, there was a lot of examples of this happening at the time, of people from the previous musical movement trying to gatecrash, sort of... I know it wasn't really kind of post-punk electro. It sort of fitted in with that, you know, the whole kind of punk disco crossover thing. But they were all members of bands like Camel, and Quantum Jump was them trying to get with the times after prog rock got out of fashion. You are right, it did come out in 1975, but according to everything can find it was Tony Blackburn's record of the week and then they claim it was banned by the BBC which sounds like absolute hogwash to me I think just it sounds like it was on a small label I think the label went bust or something because I can't see it being banned for any reason I think the fact that the song is about a gay relationship between the Lone Ranger and uh, Tonto may have something to do with it but Tony Blackburn have noticed that <laughs> <laughs> it, you know I mean if you do listen to the lyrics it is about the Lone Ranger finding comfort with <laughs> about he he a puffer or something yes I thought so. yeah, they, they use the word puffer yes they do yes but I, I only listened to the first five seconds so I was blissfully unaware of this for quite a while <laughs> well yeah I mean unfortunately you know we stumbled across two things that really probably went without comment at the time I will give Kenny Everett a get out of jail free card because he did a few ill-advised things at various points yeah. of his career at the same time as being a real campaigner you know for liberalism in general making himself yeah. a very visible gay person in the public eye and even before he came out not really caring who knew it Quantum Jump I'm a bit unhappy with the lyrics I've got to say that <laughs> I'm, I'm less inclined to fight yeah. their cause Really? Well, to be fair, he did only use the first five seconds, so, <laughs> so you don't really get into the, the Lone Ranger bit. Yeah, at, I think at they, that point. they knew what they were doing. But for many years, I just thought it was a nonsense word, and then I only only found out many years later that it was actually at the time the longest place name in the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a hill in New Zealand. Apparently, that wasn't on. I don't know if it wasn't on the original release of a bit. It certainly wasn't on the original version. And someone said that needs something silly at the start to make it a hit. And wow. so it's interesting you only listened to the first five seconds. It's like Spaceman by Babylon Two. Yes, the first bit's really good yeah. when it's sped up, and then when it slows down, it's terrible. Yeah, you know. The, when you did that thing with the, the needle where you used to balance it out and you tried to get exactly on the right bit. 
and then take it <laughs> off again. You know, I became a master of that. So would you write down? I would I would transcribe it phonetically. So I'd wow. tar, mat, a, wata, tangi, <laughs> and so on. And I'd have this huge word, and then I'd, I'd go over it again and again. I don't know why. Has it ever come in useful in any circumstance? Yeah, do you know what? If I'm showing off that I can also say that Welsh place, then yes. <laughs> but, but in no other circumstances, I have to kind of edge it into a conversation, which is not about that at all. I also heard that Welsh place from a song. Sorry, I'm enthusiastic. Now. I remember that. That record, he's played on Radio Merseyside a lot for some reason. That yes. Go on. I, I, I can't remember the whole word. So come on, sing it, and I'll see if it's the same one. Welsh place. It's the song went, Clan Vire, with Gwyn Geth, Go Gerechwim, Dropeth Lan, Cecilia Go Go Go. I mean, it was like no. Ralph McTell, something like wow. that. And it was like this kind of upbeat, perky song. Radio Merseyside always had about two and a half records. Yes. And they would yes. change them completely. And that was one of the ones that I remember them playing a lot. As well as, a little bit later, The Only Way by Lisa Stansfield, which I chose when I was a guest <laughs> on this. But they really, they didn't seem to care about music at all. I mean, I doubt they played The Lone Ranger, let's be honest about it. But yes, probably not. Terry Lanane <laughs> might have done on his indie show <laughs> <laughs> no they had a playlist and they stuck to it yeah well you say playlist it was play paragraph <laughs> yeah, yeah. play back of a stamp we're really going to territory that about 0.0008 percent of the listenership will remember now but do you remember the tiny little people by the saucepan lids i do I do. Is that Brian that haunts that me to this day yeah i can i've got it in my head now oh god <laughs> how's it go I'm not singing it. It was it, it was little kids. Yeah, okay. This is a song for tiny little people, tiny little people. Oh, yes, I now you said that. But they drove that into the ground. They really did. Was pensioners would write in. Can you, oh, can you play that song with the kids? It's like, oh, not it's even pensioners. All St. Winifred's children's, yes. all those kind of things. Yeah. It's pensioners. It's yeah. their fault. Do you think many pensioners like Quantum Jump? Until he heard the bit about the Lone Ranger and Tonto, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but genuinely, have you really heard that anywhere since it was out? Because you do get these records that are huge hits. And yet this isn't really a novelty record. It's a yeah, proper record yeah. with a novelty bit in it. And yet, it's like it's almost like it's completely gone from history. Yeah, I, 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 I searched for it. It is on Spotify. I did find it on Spotify and listened to it again just to check I had the pronunciation correct. <laughs> I saw it once on Top of the Pops 2 in the 1990s and had it on a tape. I used yeah. to record Top of the Pops 2, but looking back, that was the only time I've ever seen it or heard it. Yeah, Quantum Jump has kind of faded into history. And with those lyrics, you can kind of understand why. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny how, you know, something can seem acceptable at the time and then isn't not long afterwards. I mean, that probably is the reason, like you say, that we've not heard it since then. Yeah, I imagine it'd be problematic. I mean, the word puffed, I would imagine, in, in, yeah, the, in the yeah. song might be problematic. Yeah. Mind you, am I right in thinking that there's stuff like um, Games Without Frontiers and Oliver's yes. Army still gets played on Radio, radio Merseyside in the afternoon and Oliver's Army does have the N-word in it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there was a radio edit that takes out, certainly they use that on Absolute Radio. They also use an edit of Walk on the Wild Side on there, which, which bothers oh. me a bit because I kind of feel that's a bit insulting to what Lou Reed actually did with that, which was to kind of blow open the whole, the underground, and say, these people are normal, they are people like you. Yeah. To edit that retrospectively feels a bit wrong to me, in a way that editing money for nothing doesn't, because at the end of the day, you get less money for nothing, and that's that's always a bonus. <laughs> okay, we're well, moving swiftly on to your yes, next yes, choice. Yes, definitely. It's some far more wholesome entertainment for all the family. Hey, what do you think you're doing? Sorry. Oh, Sorry. This is an emergency. It's an emergency. Will you cut it out? You'll have us in the curb. Who do you think you are? Hijacker. What are you talking about? A friend of mine in that taxi up there has been killed. I don't care. Why choose me? I'll get fired. Well, that's what rockets are for, isn't it? Okay, well, that was Roger Moore stealing Valerie Leon's car in The Persuaders. We're not actually choosing The Persuaders here. Dave, who were Roger Moore and The Crime Fighters? Roger Moore and The Crime Fighters were a six-book series of children's thrillers published in 1977, I believe. I think trying to write off the back of the popularity of Alfred Hitchcock and The Three Investigators. They must have thought about, who have we got now? Because Alfred Hitchcock obviously moved to America. So who have we got we can have as a head of a crime-fighting child unit? And they went for Roger Moore. 
We have actually had Alfred Hitchcock and Three Investigators on here when Steve O'Brien was on. But I knew nothing of these books. You know, I'm quite big on... I'm less James Bond than I am The Persuaders. I mean, recently I nearly bought... Nearly, nearly spent £100 on a film poster for one of the European movie versions of The Persuaders. And then I thought, no, actually, I might need to eat at some point this month, so better not. But I've never heard of these books. And I would have been probably around the target age for them. I mean, were they actually good books or was it just the lore of Roger Moore that was the appeal? I read one quite recently uh, in preparation for this and it was actually really well written. I mean, they had they had a writer that had written for the Pan Book of Horror, a guy called, I think, Field and Hughes. They had Dulcie Gray, the actress, wrote one. The very first one was written by Malcolm Hull. Yes, yeah. I think that's probably why the the kids in the books, their dog is called Dalek. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. All I know is it says, it says on Wikipedia they had an ugly dog. It's not like the three investigators. The three investigators have crimes like a parrot was stolen that knew where the will was hidden, that kind of thing, where the crime fighters, it'd be like things like drug smuggling and murder, and there was a forgery ring, and there was also a Russian spy ring on a children's cruise <laughs> to Denmark, I think it was. At the end of every story, for some bizarre reason, they'd be taken off to talk to Roger Moore about it. Report back to Roger Re- Moore? Yeah, basically report back to Roger Moore, say, look, Roger, this is what happened. We've got a Russian spy ring, and he'd go, well, well done. Congratulations, what's it doing with me? So was Roger Moore in a control room or something? No, he'd be like at the studio filming something, or... <laughs> I, I don't know. And they just, and they just the police chief go, right, let's go and talk to so Roger. What would Roger Moore do with this information? <laughs> no, I don't know. I've got a feeling Roger possibly in his spare time, you know, apart from the network catalogues, he possibly um, coordinated child crime fighting years throughout the world. <laughs> would be my guess. Well, I did look into, because I was wondering how much input he had, and apparently he just lent his name and his image to them. But uh, what, what is it with this edition and unfortunate language? He insisted that all his royalties were donated to, quote, the Stars Organisation for Spastics. Well, that was that, the time, that, that yeah. Heart in the right place. Yeah. You never see that. You used to get that collection box, which was in the form of a kid with a leg caliper. Oh, you don't yes. Get that. Yeah, you yeah. never see that anymore, you do you? Don't see that. You never see any of those things Actually, Do you remember the collection boxes for the blind and news agents? It would be, it was a purple filter over it, and it was a boy with a black bowl head with his eyes shut no? to show that he was blind. Yes. yes. They were always, yeah, in the, yeah. always in the shops around by ours. Well, no, that's, that's, say so, yeah, say so, Roger Moore, crime-fighting children. You've got to mention the network. Oh, yeah, well, so right, yeah, obviously Roger Moore famously was a knitwear model, wasn't he? And I do know that in the Persuaders, particularly, he uh, didn't he model quite a lot of his own clothing yeah, line. Yeah, he designed his own suits. Yeah, yeah. And he actually has a signature in the end credits as a designer, which I always thought was a really classy touch. Yeah, yeah I, I think if you're going to design a safari suit, you probably should sign it. <laughs> yeah. I honestly think it is high time that Roger Moore was reappraised. I mean, because for years the thing was, oh, he's very limited, you know. And but the point was, he was limited to what he could do brilliantly he was excellent at what he did people like that shouldn't be dismissed and it's such a shame that do you know what one of the last things he ever tweeted was Mark Gatiss said something like on Twitter it was something along the lines of watching Live and Let Die on ITV3 Roger Moore was brilliant and he replied to him saying I'd be brilliant in Doctor Who and Sherlock as well can you have a word imagine that I think Spitting Image probably has a lot to do with that the image of him doesn't it with his eyebrow yes yeah, you know, I think they were responsible for destroying a few careers. Well, David Steele particularly yeah. wasn't even. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. uh, no, Roger Moore apparently, you know, he can coordinate crime fighting throughout the world, so that's <laughs> that's something to bear in mind. <laughs> well, there was actually a crime fighters club as well. There's a flyer online somewhere where you, if you sent off, you got a membership card, an iron-on transfer saying the crime fighters for your t-shirt. They obviously not paying Roger for his name for that, and the chance to meet Roger Moore. I would love to know who won. Not. Well, yeah, I mean, at the back of every book, I mean, the, the books I, I actually track down, they do actually have at the back a little thing you put out the back of the book, but nobody's clearly wants to destroy their books, so I don't think any of them <laughs> got sent off. I wish I'd been in the Crime Fighters Club now, because I had all the books. That sounds cool. Well, I wonder if anyone did actually join. Somebody must have done at some point. Because you always got those things at the back of books in those days, didn't you? Because the one that always stayed with me was at the back of the Doctor Who Target novels. There would be the advert for a Target badge that you could Ooh. send off in, the, in three bold colours it were like psych comment from all your friends <laughs> yes they flush your head down the toilet <laughs> I think the most exciting thing about the Target books was the list of t- titles coming soon at the front I always thought that was exciting but it wouldn't have ever a date it would no. be like, well when when are they yeah. coming yeah. like you always say you used to go searching in your news agency, yes you? and you know there's one of those wire racks that revolve I used to revolve it every week looking and the, the most exciting week of my life was when I found two new Target Doctor Who novels I think it was Loch Ness Monster and one other that I can't quite remember but that was the most exciting day 
I ever. I was a very sad child, you know. <laughs> so the th- Crime Fighters books, did you find them in the news anyway? Were they more WH Smith? Because they have an air of WH Smith to me. I think I found them on the same wire rack, to be honest. You know, the nestled between the Agaton Sacks and the, um, <laughs> the Loch Ness Monster book. And the tie-ins of ITV dramas that nobody saw. No, I definitely got them from a local news agent because, I mean, he had, like I say, he had this really tall wire rack that, you know, had all the, the Target titles in and the... It was like a, it was a name from Mount, it was like Everest Books or something like that it was. So I think they were there as well, so I'm pretty sure... And I had all six of them. And I'm surprised they're obscure, to be honest. But, I mean, I looked online, you know, to get more information so I could sound more knowledgeable, but literally it was one guy had done an article on it and everybody yeah. else had paste what he'd said. I've had that happen to me a few times. I'm amazed that obscure because like I say you know, obviously Malcolm Polk a well known writer did the first one and, and they had people like say Field and Hughes and Dulcie Gray and, and they had proper crimes in it wasn't just like three investigators where it was like I don't know stolen jewel or something just before we move on to your next choice as we are sort of covering similar geography here in the similar time frame I'm going to go really obscure and say do either of you guys remember Wilson's the bookshop yo yes yeah was that down Renshaw Street? It was, yes. Yeah, I do, because the, so the, the, the name was painted that. on the side of the building. Yeah, and it was there until the early 90s, because I remember yeah. buying the very last Target novels there. They had all of them, like, just piled up on the floor. But that was famously where I saw an advert for So Long and Thanks for All the Fish before it came out, which had a completely different cover image of a bird in a mains-powered cage. No, I've never seen that. isn't in the book at all. And I was thought I'd imagined it until one day I mentioned it to Mark Griffiths, the Douglas Adams expert, who wrote a brilliant play called We Apologise for the Inconvenience about Douglas Adams. But he said, oh yeah, I remember that. And I've got a flyer. And he scanned it. And it was real. So there was a poster up in this independent bookshop of a plot detail from Douglas Adams' book that never happened. Wow. Oh wow. What's that about? No, I never, I never went to Wilson's personally. I was I was always hunting on, because I lived on the Wirral and I just was hunting in my local shop. I used, used to go to um, New Ferry or Burke and head of the weekends new ferry of course where my mum actually helped a villain steal all the board games from a shop what <laughs> my, we used to go we used to go to this shop I think it was called the Borough Cycle and they had all these games piled up by the door which is probably a mistake and this guy this guy had walked in lifted all these games up and basically made his escape helped by my mum who held the door open for him <laughs> I'm sure that the crime fighters would have caught him if they'd been put onto it, but... Uh, <laughs> more would have been really pleased. <laughs> but would your next choice have been any use, I wonder? Citizen Band Radio. If you have one of these sets, you can talk in the airwaves to other people with the same sort of equipment. Up to now, all CB transmission has been illegal, but thousands of CBers have been using AM waveband equipment. Next week, CB will be made legal, but only on the FM waveband. That's just one of the strange features of the world of Citizens Band Radio that Alan Hargreaves has been exploring. Okay, well, either that's a bit of Convoy GB by Laurie Lingo and the Dipsticks, or if I've been persuaded not to use that, it's just some people talking on CB radio, because I've got no idea what this is. Stephen, what was 10-4 Action? I'm the only person who seems to remember this. 10-4 Action was a comic book magazine for children that rode the CB radio wave of the late 70s, early 80s, which, looking back, is absolutely bizarre, because it's such an American phenomenon. These kings of the road riding around in the desert getting chased by the police and carrying convoys and all sorts of exotic sorts of things in the back of the lorry and they had their own language their own specific language that they used to communicate with each other so the police wouldn't understand them and then of course it comes to britain and you've got plumbers from bolton putting on fake american accents saying break a break a good buddy there's nothing wrong with being a plumber from bolton but it's it's like no you're not a king of the road you're in a white van going to someone's house to fix the tap but 10-4 action it was kind of broken up between comic strips and incredibly anal dry articles about cb radio rigs and the thing was i got swept on by this wave as well and i remember i wanted one but my mum and dad wouldn't let me buy one i think they thought it was a bit dangerous like a kind of the precursor to internet grooming but two of my mates had cb radios they bought them or got the parents to buy them because uh, they actually told me this they wanted to chat up girls in a kind of free internet chat room type thing and they were disappointed because they were basically ended up talking to well plumbers from Bolton 10-4 action remember it would have um, kind of really really badly written and drawn humour strips about people with CB radios there was like a, a northern trucker I think it was who used to drive around and get into scrapes with bikers and pick up women 
because it was one of those magazines that looking back was incredibly inappropriate sometimes the main strip that I used to love and I remember I used to copy the artwork as well it, it seemed incredible it was like really intricate and beautifully drawn it was about Big Boy and Foxy Lady who are these two American superheroes in a big metropolitan city and they wore kind of armour superhero armour and helmets like um, Ant-Man and the Wasp and their helmets had CB radio rigs in them which is an incredibly tenuous link to CB but that was the only reason I ever bought this magazine I think it I think it must have ran for a good six months and then kind of vanished were you the only person that bought it though because I don't remember many kids being I always viewed CB radio as something that nationwide kept telling you you were interested yeah like, yeah no I'm not really and the comic itself doesn't look that exciting I've got to say you know given that was around the time 2008 was already out and the relaunched yeah. eagle and you would have had to have been really into CB to get this I would have thought this is the strange thing because looking back I'm thinking why the hell was I into I think it was just peer pressure and me two mates who were swept along by it in, in school but I did buy it specifically for that one comic strip with Foxy Lady and Big Boy because I loved the artwork and was into superheroes but I don't remember really giving a shit about the rest of the magazine especially certainly not the dry articles but I actually managed to find the 1983 annual on oh. eBay bought it in preparation and it's shite it's absolutely awful it's for some reason it's edited by someone called Sweeney Todd who actually says at the beginning even though the magazine was cancelled two years ago in 1981 <laughs> This is the thing. We died two years ago, but there's enough of an interest that we've managed to crank out two annuals since. Can I just say, if you buy a magazine with the words Big Boy and Foxy Lady on the front, <laughs> yeah. it might not have the content you want if it's yes. CB radios. <laughs> what were their powers? Exactly. Well, Big Boy has a motorbike, and they they could just fight people, and they could talk to each other over CB radios. But the mayor, the mayor used to write there, ring into it, say, well, the particular story in this annual is to do, it's a very do much style story, it's to do with sentient mice who've broken free of kind of government testing facility and uh, there they are tapping away at a computer and they've printed out a, a <laughs> shit you know a blackmail demand to the mayor to say right you've been testing on us for like the last few years we're gonna give you loads back you've got an hour to i don't know our mice's hand is too small to use a typewriter <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, on, it's on the picture they're like pressing individual <laughs> <laughs> but then they call Big Boy and Foxy Lady on. But this is the thing, that artwork that I found so intricate and beautiful that I would actually, I've always drawn, I'd actually copy it. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. But that's my 11-year-old mind being blown away by someone who is slightly older than me with slightly better abilities. The first story in this annual is called The History of CB Radio, and it looks like it was written and drawn by a four-year-old. The whole thing is a World War II story with Hitler and the Allies breaking through in the final push. Six pages of just like a substandard if it was warlord or battle it just gets tossed in the bin the last picture says something like and in that jeep was the granddaddy of all cb radios the end it's not the history of cb radios at all it's just oh dreadful i'm dreadful. quite taken with the idea of you know somebody buying it for big boy or foxy lady and getting the wrong content because it reminds me of something i've always been curious about which is i remember charlie brooker saying years ago that he got sometimes letters intended for charlie brooks saying well hey big knockers love or whatever but I always wanted to know what about the letters she got that were intended for him <laughs> they were like what did you think of the news on the 14th of September of course yeah talking about bad television programmes well you were a strange time I think that was a thing that was like a back then you didn't really need a budget or a big company behind you to make comic books whereas now the British comic book industry's kind of died or compressed so everything's kind of like bagged with a free gift every single week or fortnight and back then I, I do remember some of the most bizarre titles would come out and they'd come out for like three months and then die and I'm guessing 10-4 action lasted about six months to a year if it was lucky because that CB radio wave I don't remember it being a big big thing for long at all you know, I think it's strange though looking back that that air of glamour and exotic that was just basically a kind of AM radio rig with a big walkie talkie attached but somehow it was like oh I've got to get one of them and chat to people I don't know I think it, it is probably the, it's a precursor on the mobile phone as you say or the yeah. internet or just have yeah. that connectivity the 0898 numbers also I think just foreign and abroad was glamorous in some ways in the days when we had less exposure to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Realise these people were living ordinary lives, you know. I remember yeah. because I was obsessed with the European Top 20, which you used to sometimes get if you twiddled the radio dial around late at night. Yeah. Think, oh, it's really exciting. Like, you know, they've got all these different records in Spanish and so on. Yeah, I used to do that. Yeah, If, if you've got like a voice speaking German, you think, wow, this radio's <laughs> amazing. I can, I, can, God, yeah. I can hear the world. Well, I used to think that anything American was instantly glamorous, exotic. Kelly Monteith, 
the comedian, yeah, who had his own TV show over here. His stick was basically, I'm American, and it just seemed like, oh my god, an American comedian, let's give him a series. Whereas now it's like, yeah, you put him in the pile with all the other ones, but the fact that he came to Britain and had such a huge career, and then again fell off a cliff in the mid '80s because it was like, well, cheap package holidays, anyone can start flying to America. That is, is kind of time went. I think it's the '70s as well, '70s and '80s. I mean, novelty acts could last years, couldn't they? Yeah, yeah, they had one gimmick. Well, there was a guy on Opportunity Knox, I remember, whose basically entire act was flexing his abs. He was so well known that one of the Smash Robots adverts parodies that. And for anyone who does the arm flexing thing now still goes duh, duh, duh. But where's he? We can't even remember his name between the three of us, poor guy. Maybe he's just collecting the royalties for all the other people who do it now. (laughs) (laughs) He's sitting in a mansion somewhere. Right, well, moving on from somebody who we can't remember the name of, we're coming on to your next choice, which we really don't know much more about than the name. Pictures was a Friday night comedy drama series uh, on ITV, which is about a budding film actress in the silent era of British films. And I was obsessed with it. <laughs> it's the first time I ever remember actually taking scissors to the TV times and cutting out things about it. It was in 1983. It was a kind of a sort of romantic comedy drama thing starring uh, Peter McHenry and Wendy Morgan, who I was madly in love with. And Harry Taub played the American film producer. And it was, uh, nobody remembers it. I'll be honest about this, I'd never heard of it. I mean, I'll come back to a minute why I'm wondering why you might have been so obsessed with it. But, yeah, when you look at the cast list, you know, Annette Badlam was in it, Wendy Morgan was in stuff like The Jewel in the Crown, you know. It's not exactly yeah. like she disappeared into obscurity afterwards. Harry Taub, of course, a million mm. bit parts in Doctor Who. And he's yeah. a man who says, in my considered opinion, they are cunts from day to day. Which I've always <laughs> <Yeah>. loved. <laughs> the fact is Harry Taub saying that. Were you obsessed with it because you actually liked it or because you were allowed to stay up for it? or because you fancied her? Well, I think, to be honest with you, I think it's because I fancied her. I think by this time I would have been about 16, so I, it's the first time I distinctly remember being interested in the, the relationship in it. Do you know what I mean? Before that, it'd be like, oh, yeah, she's fit. Or, you know, but I was kind of, I was very invested in the, the, this romantic relationship between the, the scriptwriter, a guy called Bill Trench, and the actress Ruby L. Sears. And their, their kind of relationship is through the seven episodes as they battle to get a film made with various obstacles in the way. And it was the first time I remember being invested in an actual relationship as a will they won't they kind of thing it was really good and i i watched it again i got the dvd eventually from america because you can't get it in this country at all and i thought it was equally good when i saw it quite recently that brings me round to the fact that you know most people when you think of roy clark you just think of last of the summer wine first of the summer wine some people might think of rosie that fairly anodyne sitcom about the copper but he had this sideline writing, really weird, esoteric stuff like this. There was Flickers, which is another sort of romantic comedy drama set in the silent era. There was Pulaski, which I nearly used the theme from as a clip, which is a very odd meta thing about, am I right? He played a TV detective and he yes. solved crimes in his spare time, but you weren't sure whether it was his spare time or not. And you weren't sure whether it was the episode he was in or not. And there's this blurring of the lines between the two realities for him. It's really weird. He did The World of Eddie Weary, which is an odd private eye thing for ITV, I think about 1989. And apparently, something for Norwegian TV called Handel and Vandal. I don't want to know any more than the title. I just want it to be Handel and a Yob going around smashing things up. I just find it bizarre that, like I say, nobody remembers this thing because I watched it religiously. And I, like I said, well, that's strange because I mean, I don't remember pictures at all, but with that writer and that cast, so that's never been on DVD in this country. No, never. Never. Yeah, I, I, never repeated never, never repeated never oh, in this country weird. and you can find out very little about I mean, there's an IMDB entry for it it's weird the stuff that falls through the cracks it's like been wiped from history yeah it's, it's you know if it didn't have the DVD I doubt it myself if it existed well it's not even we've not even got it on TV cream have we got stainless steel and star spies on there weird yeah that's <laughs> obscure but at least that was out on DVD over here and yeah like I say I'm, I'm, I'm astonished that this is so obscure well I'm wondering if the 
there might be a rights issue with it because, like you say, there's only the IMDb page. It says it was made by ATV, but it's mm. only 1983, which is a bit late for an ATV production, given that they went to the wall in 1981. The yeah. Reshuffle. So what went on there? That's really quite... Because initially I thought, you know, with it being ATV, oh, maybe it's been wiped. That's why nobody remembers it. But as you say, it's out on DVD. And I did check, and it does all still exist in master format. So what on earth was... Why was it delayed by two years? I got the DVD and watched it all again. I think I watched it maybe in one sitting because I was so engaged with it yet wow. again. It's amazing, isn't it? When you watch a lot of programmes and they don't age well, to, yeah. to put it mildly. A lot of programmes don't age well. But there are those occasional series, aren't there, which you watch again and you remember why you fell in love with them the first time? Yeah. I think of British, a lot of British drama, they didn't have the money for the big sets or the big set pieces so it was all character it was all yeah I think that engages you a lot and it still engages you a lot do you think Handel and Vandal would if we saw it I think that would be fantastic <laughs> I think do you know I want to see Handel fighting yeah. Vandal some sort of like <laughs> resurgence of the the tribesmen of the, the fourth or the century I, I pictured like a sort of football yob from the 70s with a bobble hat <laughs> and the I, I had a completely different view I just had a vision of like the, all these tribesmen pouring over that is waving in the air and there's Hannah with a harpsichord to fight them off. <laughs> His studious harpsichord to so that one note just really irritates the ears and they have, they have to stop an invasion. <laughs> I want to see that. Okay, well, I can't think of a good way to move from there into your next choice. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think this one. <laughs> well, let's just go ahead. Then, a soldier, full of strange oaths, jealous in honour, sudden and quick in quarrel. Seeking high score, even in the laser's mouth. Right, okay, well, I'm sure you will recognise the dulcet tones of TV's John Pertwee there, but you're probably thinking, what the hell is going on, and when did he invent Blue Jam? So, Stephen, what was Deus Ex Machina? Deus Ex Machina was, well, an interactive movie with John Pertwee, Ian Jury, Frankie Howard. Um, really ambient, strange, like you said, it was almost like Blue Jam type music. It charted one person's life, the player's life, from a sperm to old age and eventual death over the course of an hour. And it was all compressed into 48K on the ZX Spectrum. It was one of the most ridiculously wildly ambitious video games that has ever been by a, a visionary designer called Mel Croucher. He's just off his head. His, his, his ideas were just all always way beyond the technology of the time. I think it was, what, 83, 84 on the ZX Spectrum? Because I, I first found out about his company because he used to have these beautifully drawn kind of cartoon adverts in the video game magazines at the time, like uh, Crash and Computer and Video Games. The company mascot was a, a little bald, gobliny type creature with a bulbous nose called the Pie Man because he made uh, several games based on the Pie Man, Pie Mania, and um, Pie Bald, where he was getting pissed all the time. Deus Ex Machina. I mean, this this was the peak of... He he wanted to move video games beyond shooting stuff and jumping on platforms. He wanted to emotionally engage the player. It's just that you'd probably have to wait another 20 or 30 years for technology to catch up to his ideas. But basically, he got... got, I think it was a 17-year-old lad in to actually program the game. And it's a series of mini-games which kind of involved ZX Spectrum-type blocky graphics, and you're kind of moving balls around and blocks around and sperm around. But the big selling point was the fact that he managed to get these big stars in at the time to narrate the various parts of the game. Because you started off as a sperm and went through school, childhood. I think you joined the army at one point. But it would always end up with you as an old man with a walking stick. And you were going to die. There's nothing you could do about it. But you were kind of would have to die, I think it was with a kind of the highest score or kind of the highest happiness or something at the end. The thing was, it was always synchronised. It would actually come up on the screen, a countdown from six or something down to one, and then you press play on your tape so that John Pertwee's voice guides you in, and you'd be playing your weird little mini-games kind of thing, but at the end of side one, you'd have to turn it over and start again kind of thing. The story goes from Mel Croucher himself that loads of people bought this and ended up ignoring the game. They just switched the lights off in the bedroom, put the headphones on, smoke weed, drop acid, and just let the actual tape wash over them because it's so strange 
Yeah, I can see that happening because he really was. He was kind of ahead of his time, Mel Croucher, because I mainly remember, I didn't have many of his games, but I remember he used to write a lot of columns in the computer game magazines, like satirical columns about, I distinctly remember there was one about, you know, when Teddy Ruxpin was a new thing, the talking teddy bear, and he wrote this sort of satirical column about how it could be hacked and who it could be hacked by. And, you know, some of it, a little bit distasteful, some of it, you know, Cold War stuff. Uh, you know, it, there was all kinds of things like that. And obviously, it was a really ambitious game. And from what I remember, wasn't it mail order only and really expensive? Yeah. yeah. And it crashed and burned. And I remember him being interviewed about that by Sinclair User, where he kind of said, you know, I've been really deflated by that. I'm going to walk away from it. But I've got an idea for a peripheral, which will allow you to play, say, Through the Wall by the video for Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd is playing on your TV. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not quite sure what, I see what the point of that was. But even so, what a vision to have. I think that's the thing. He, he had this vision of kind of, he wasn't a gamer himself. He actually said he only ever played Dex, Deus Ex Machina twice just to make sure it worked. But he was very much an ideas man. This is the thing. I mean, the fact that he just thought, sod it, I'm just going to ring up John Pertwee and Frankie Howard and Ian Jory and see if they want to jog in. That was just a tale he told that um, John Pertwee was an hour late to recording session and obviously a, a recording studio costs money. So John Pertwee swans in in his motorbike leathers and Mel Croucher thinks, you arrogant bastard turning up late. Turns out he'd just been in a massive motorbike crash. And his, his arm was injured. It was like blood dripping down his arm. Yeah, he says, right, crack on, takes his leathers off, does the entire thing perfectly in one take, then puts his leathers back on, gets on his bike and goes on. I'm wondering why the soundtrack has never been sort of reissued or anything, though. Because, I mean, it's comparable to, do you know about Galactic Nightmare? No, I don't know that one. Was it was, I remember seeing it advertised in the small ads in computer magazines. Basically, someone had done his own sort of Jeff Wayne's War of the World style space opera in his bedroom. I think with one synth, and I'm not sure, it might be the Commodore 64, which is an amazing soundscape, you know, the story of this kind of mission stroke battle across space. I don't imagine many people bought it at the time, but I know Johnny Trunk from Trunk Records came across it. It was reissued by Trunk a couple of years ago, and the reviews were just amazing, because it is, it's something that, you know, you have to set aside the length of a double album. I think it was a double tape, obviously, the release. Yeah. So listen to it. You can't just dip in and out of it. There is no ebb and flow to it. It's one long, continuous thing, but it's really quite amazing, and you'd think there'd be more interest in the soundtrack of this, really. Obviously, there is a huge interest in retro games, and the music at the time, I think that was a thing back then, though everyone was kind of exploring what the boundaries were with video games back then they were so abstract because of the technology and like you say it was um Deus Ex Machina just crashed and burned because the packaging was so strange you have to you put it in with a poster I believe and a booklet and loads of video game shops were like well I don't know where to put this it's too expensive so it ended up being a mail order thing and I guess loads of people just thought well it's just too strange it, it, apparently it was massive abroad and it was the most pirated game of the year of its release by far because people couldn't afford it. This is the thing, there was, um, I know there was the Black Mirror episode recently, Bandersnatch. That seems to be, well, the name seems to be taken from Bandersnatch, which was an Imagine game, I think, that actually yes, yeah. um, the entire company fell under, because, again, their ambition was so far beyond the technology. They envisioned this massive interactive movie, but they, the kind of technology spiraled out of control. They envisioned this bolt-on piece of add-on hardware that would slot into the back of your ZX Spectrum to boost the memory. And the graphics, the, the, I think the average price of a game was about a tenner back then, but it was like the, the equivalent of 30, 40 quid now. And they were planning to sell that for 30, 40 quid back then. So obviously sellers were just going, no, we're, we're not taking that. That's like the equivalent of a 90 pound game that may or may not be shite. Well, there were quite a few attempts at doing like highbrow cerebral. It seems to be the Spectrum in particular. They did the yeah. Sorts of things like, didn't Shadow with the Unicorn also have an add-on memory pack? Which, yeah. you know, was a really difficult game to understand anyway. Was was it called Shadow Fire, where it had the six sort of Battle of the Planet type characters, where there were no words in it, you, you I clicked can't, on them. It was like Windows. Really, yeah. people just wanted Boulder Dash. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these things were, were not going to really 
cross over to the kids who were actually buying the games. I think they were they were aimed maybe at the parents who bought the computer, little realising the parents had bought it just to shut the kids up. Yeah. And didn't look at it. They, despite claims of the country, they didn't do their accounts on them. You know, they didn't compose letters to the headmaster on them because you couldn't print anything out anyway. They just yeah. They just ignored the computers. Well, that was the thing I um, I wanted to convince my mum and dad to buy a Spectrum because they said they can help me with my homework because that was the the story in the head. <laughs> And then they didn't see me for a year. I was literally in my bedroom. I'd come home from school, <laughs> dump me, me bag and my coat off, go up to my bedroom, and that was it for the entire evening. But um, yeah, I think that was the thing, because there was Jeff Minter as well. Yes, on the call- yeah. He's this mad visionary hippie who was making psychedelic camel-related video <laughs> games. <laughs> I was just insane. Did you do have bangers heaven where you had to go around nutting hammers? Yes. Yeah. I, I had an Atari and I got all my games pirated off my math teacher. <laughs> wow. Well, that's the thing about the, the video game industry back then. I mean, now obviously that most games require millions of pounds, millions of dollars to make with a, a team of like a hundred. Like, a, well, it's bigger than Hollywood now. But the fact that one guy with an idea hiring a 17-year-old kid to actually code it. With this insanely ambitious, I mean, it would never get made now because I don't know what the budget would be. You'd have to have, obviously, the, the money to hire stars to do the voiceover. And the fact that it would, undoubtedly, like you say, no one would buy the damn thing because they just want Call of Duty 25. Did you ever try and type in those codes you got in the no, magazines? I did. Yes, they, I did. And yes. then they didn't work because you missed out a semicolon line. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was Krakatoa 2012, which is in Sinclair user <laughs> Christmas, where at the end it said, stop. That's it at the end of the code. I could never get that to work. And there was an adventure game, kind of, that they illustrated with the spitting image puppet of Reagan, where you had to get Nancy's Christmas present or something. And I typed that in as well. It didn't work. I bet someone out there has put all of these online now. Almost certainly, yeah. But I used to type in really carefully in all the spaces, right, and the full stops, wherever, and they would never, ever work. You'd waste an afternoon. Yeah, well, that's how you things in. <laughs> Imagine that now for the kids today. I want to play the new game. Here you go. Here's... here's <laughs> Six Five, pages of code. Yeah, six pages of code, type it in. Off you crack. You're like, no. But yeah, I do remember, I used to buy a computer and video games every month, and half the magazine was pages of code for these terrible games. I do remember getting a few to work. I was delighted because you'd record them onto your tape, which I would guard like the Holy Grail because I got one to work. Isn't there a thing at the end of that band session on Channel 4, uh, sorry, the, on Netflix, whatever it is, where it's actually the sound, you could, if you play it into Spectrum, it'll work? Apparently so, yeah. 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 Or you can play a ZX Spectrum game. Then that would never work for me. I'd like a math teacher. <laughs> okay, well, moving on to your last choice now, which I doubt there was ever a game based on this. Hey. You'll love our sweet savings for spring at Williams. It'll be love at first sight for this suite at only £139. And there's £100 off many normal prices. Save £100 on this spacious suite. Williams save you £100 on this marvellous corner unit. Williams even save you £100 on this super leather look suite. Wouldn't you love £100 off one of these suites? Then hurry to see the sweet savings for spring at Williams Furniture Stores now. Okay, well that was an advert for Williams Furniture Superstore, which you really have to see to believe. I'll put a link to it somewhere. But Stephen, I believe it's another advert which I haven't seen, which I really won't believe. Yes, now this is another one that's so obscure that I believe I was the only person who got to see this for decades, literally decades. It was an advert for, like you said, a furniture store called Williams that I remember from kind of the 77, 78, I believe, because I vividly remember it being on. It's burnt into my memory. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was writing about the Green Cross Code public information films for Scarred for Life Volume 1 and started researching them, I stumbled across two or three, do you remember, retro teletype forums that started talking about the Williams Furniture advert in relation to the Green Cross Man. But basically, there was a massive uproar, briefly, related to these adverts. It was The whole thing was basically a superhero, a man in a super skin-tight spandex costume, slowly running towards the screen like the $6 million man in a costume like the Green Cross Man, except whoever made the adverts didn't realise that you're supposed to put a jock strap on the actor and is, well, basically I'm going to say his cock and balls are swinging all over the place, clearly. I can't remember my mum's... I do remember my mum's reaction at one point. I think she wanted me to just switch the telly over, but there was an uproar over it. it was, from what I gather, it was equally split between people ringing in to get this advert banned and women ringing in, can you play this again, please? <laughs> there was also the, um, the tagline for Williams was, when you walk through the door, your pound's worth more. 
And it all came flooding back on one of these internet forums because I remember we used to sing this in school. When you walk through the door, your balls hit the floor <laughs> when we were about seven because everyone remembered this advert in school. I still look for it every six months or so on YouTube and I've never managed to come across it, ever. That unfortunately, the late 70s is the absolute gap between, I don't understand how, but somehow people have offers of things late 60s and early 70s. I think it it was probably because videos were so expensive yeah. at that point yeah. that whatever was on the tape stayed on the tape. And then yeah. it's really late 70s in America, but it's really the early 80s over here where you start to get, like, you know, just general off-air recordings. that might have adverts in. There's that gap of the late 70s where there's really not much. You know, the only things I've seen are things that people for a reason that deliberately recorded like Sapphire and Steel yeah. or the Nightmare Man or things like that. There is that gap and that's kind of the area that I've concentrated on trying to recover because not all, you know, TV even from that time frame still exists that just hoping that people out there have got, you know, white checkers plays pops and so on. Yeah, yeah. And obviously I have fa- I've found a couple of things and returned to the archives but it is that frustrating gap when you think everything will still be around for them. It's not, and I think adverts particularly prey to that. I mean, there's so many adverts I remember from when I was a young kid in the late 70s that when you see bits of them on, like, I don't know, whatever, on clip shows where they have a certain level of low-rent pundit as a talking head, that they just have very manky fourth or fifth gen offers of them. Yeah, they're always that's YouTube. All that, that's all that's left. I mean, aren't there some, you guys know this, some public information films are completely missing. Yes, yeah. Oh, it's so rare. that they. Well, yeah, they do kind of exist in the the minds of the people who watch them there's there's one that i keep getting asked about on twitter constantly that i've never seen myself because i think it might have been a regional public information film to do with hypothermia and i think it was people in the the kind of people who live near mountains in the countryside that were shown this film it was apparently it was um a squaddy or something out on a mountain is prone to hypothermia and ends up collapsing and dying but he's covered in snow he's kind of gray-faced it, it sounds what? horrible but yeah i've never seen it. it i've never it's kind of take care when you're out wrap up warm with this kind of white corpse, I believe, at the end. Never seen it myself because I live in Liverpool near a, a port. But it's one of the ones that's burnt into the memory of everyone who's seen it. And I've, I mean, I've searched and searched for um, volume one and there's no trace of the damn thing. Strangely, what you were saying about adverts, that, that, that period of time where people didn't quite have video recorders yet. There's another advert I remember. You've just reminded me. A Campbell's Meatballs advert with a jingle that has been burnt into my brain for nearly 40 years now. Campbell's Meatballs, the meat you're sure to eat tagline. But the song, I remember it was kind of Osmond's Brady Bunch type white bread American white teeth harmonies pop song that was so catchy that I, I can still remember it. I could sing it now, but I've never met anyone who's ever seen that advert because it's, a, it's 77, 78. It's the exact point that you were talking about where this television just does not exist. I like the idea of the meat that you're sure to eat as well, as well as the meat that you <laughs> might just have and just ignore. <laughs> You'll definitely eat these meatballs. That really, that's such a frustration about, I mean, I know both of you guys remember this, the Mersey Pirates. Vividly. Yes. The, the Granada Saturday morning show, where because of the, for anyone who doesn't know, it was transmitted in a really weird way. It was live from the Royal Iris, and they basically more or less pointed a signal at someone with a bin lid standing in front of the live building, <laughs> which uh, really laid to Granada, but not all of them made it to the feed either complete or in a technically recordable quality, and so there's only a couple of them hanging around. And a couple of years later, some maniac would have recorded all of them. Yeah, Including the one that I may have been visible on, which apparently doesn't exist, sadly. I know Billy Butler. It's, I mean, he was local radio legend, and he was co-host on the the Mersey Pirates. I know that's what he was ongoing projects is to get a full collection of Mersey Pirates. He's on his radio show. He was always reaching out to anyone who's got an episode. But yeah, that's a, a weird holy grail. That's the thing. Didn't you have your radio recorder really early on? Yeah. The very first thing I ever recorded was Keeper of Traken. That is early. Yeah. It is. Because I remember I had this Ferguson video star. It was a front loader. It weighed 19 kilograms. I always remember that. 19 <laughs> it was like a suit. It was like a suitcase. It was a massive thing you could barely lift. And um, yeah, the first thing I ever recorded was uh, Keeper of Trailhawken. And Strangely, it was, um, we, I think I was the last person in my school where our family got a video recorder in 1984, because I remember the first thing, 1986, sorry, 
1986, the first thing we recorded was Spinal Tap. It's premiere on Channel 4. Somebody else remembers that happening. Oh, my God. I've been challenged about this so many times, but yes, it was on, wasn't it? Yes, it was the day, literally the day we got up and finally managed to browbeat my parents into getting the video recorder. Just happened to be the, the evening that Spinal Tap was on Channel 4, and I was bouncing around the house excited that I could finally finally watch it. And I must have watched that film about 20 times in a day. Because I remember that, because didn't it have an introduction before it? From It wasn't Alex Cox, but it was someone like that. Someone of that ilk. And I remember because they told a story about, they were talking about its influence on the actual rock scene. And they said that Sting had a song called Fortress. And his road crew hated him so much, they lowered the toy fort down behind him when he was singing <laughs> it live. But yeah, 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 there was a spread, they treated it very reverentially. There was a proper introduction before the film, which I also managed to tape as well. I just wish I still had all those early tapes from when oh, I was yeah, recording. Yeah. Because all, yeah. you know, because on the end of tapes, there was always be always be a bit you'd recorded accidentally when it would be like like you say adverts or something like that that yeah. are probably now long gone. Yeah, and... yeah. Well, I managed to actually browbeat me dad into getting a second video recorder so I could do tape to tape. I did that too. And I remember at the time, late eighties, I was recording Sylvester McCoy's final season of Doctor Who. After it was all finished, I would then tape to tape and make them into a compilation, edit out the, the continuity and. Everything between, and now I'm looking back thinking, you tit, that's the stuff you, you want to con- keep. You want the continuity, don't yeah. you? My favourite tape I ever have ever had was the last episode of Blake 7. On the same night that that was on, Sweeney 2 was on ITV. Wow, that's a cheerful double hill. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that tape got washed an awful lot. Both 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 things got washed an awful lot because I was a very depressed teenager. <laughs> I've tried to look online for the design of the VHS box it was in. Bloody hell. Um, and I can't find it. It was black with green stripes. <laughs> And I've tried to, and I think it was a JVC tape, but I'm not sure. And I cannot find. A bell. I cannot find. I think I may have had a series of Red Dwarf on one of those. Yeah, wow. I, I, I cannot find that design of box anywhere. God. It's really sad that I've looked. Well, I cannot find that design of box. Actually, with all this, I'm going to put a, um, a public appeal out. If there's anyone listening who does remember the Williams Furniture Stores advert and that Campbell's Meatball advert, please contact me on Twitter. I am starting to think I'd just imagine the whole thing. That's a very disturbing imagination if you did. It is, well, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. I think that's a perfect note to go out on. Uh, just before we go, do either of you guys remember the public information film I mentioned in my appearance as a guest, which is the There Were Three of Them in a Boat one? I do remember that. I do vaguely remember that. I've never managed to come across that on YouTube. No, but yeah. I do remember that. That's a strange... Again, it's probably... Was it that period? That's gone. It was. It was exactly around then, yeah. Bloody hell. It must be 76 to 78, 79. That just seems, seems to have vanished. Oh, how frustrating is that? It is, but if anyone can identify that, or the videotape brand, or the Williams Furniture Superstore out there, <laughs> please get in touch with one of us. Steve and Dave, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Tim Worthington, a big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.